Amen. Isaiah chapter 40. The title is Our Awesome God. We left off at verse 9. I'll just review briefly, and then we'll go right to verse 10. But before I do, uh, Psalm 47 to 4. The Lord Most High is awesome, a great king over the earth. And here's a verse from Isaiah 64 about the awesomeness of God that in a small way I benefited from yesterday. Isaiah 64, verse 3, when you did awesome things for which we did not look. And, well, when I think about this ministry, how many things God has given that I never asked for that are essential. I'm so glad he gave them. The small thing was, well, I like to sit in my garage and, and study and prepare, the weather permits. And yesterday there was this unusually, unusually large horsefly that kept coming in, harassing me. So I well, I got to kill this thing. So I got a tennis racket, and I was creeping up on him because he landed, she landed, and then she like flew another six feet. I said, man, I'm not going to be able to get this thing. And then she took off again, and right when she took off, she got about four feet off the ground. This bird swooped down and grabbed it. When you did awesome things for which we did not look. And he flew up 50 feet to this oak tree and just, man, had a great meal. And uh, I, I was not bought, bugged anymore. So there's just a lighthearted story. But anyway, to be in awe, to be in, the, in wonder, amazement at the splendor of God. Well, Isaiah was, and he articulates that for us. But just going back to verse 9, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength, lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. And so we discussed this last session, and just want to go over it again. God wants his people to trust him, and he wants his people to love their faith. And that's what he's telling Zion, and which has got all of the Jewish people, and including Jerusalem. Zion had grown to have a broad meaning, but he wants us to, to love our faith, to be as a lighthouse that warns of shipwreck, but also as a beacon, runway lights, to show the show where to land, inviting outsiders to belong. That is what Christianity is supposed to be, loving to tell the truth that we have embraced. And so fear not, he says, keep your eyes on God, behold your God. And this is, of course, the key to life, beholding God. Verse 10 now, behold, the Lord Yahweh shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. I think it is invigorating to be conscious of God's power, of his strength. And that's what the prophet is communicating. Not losing sight of the fact that Isaiah lived under that Assyrian threat all of his life, and he never allowed that to push out of the way his trust and faith in God, and his joy in his, in, in his faith. It comes out so uh, poetically in, in these last 27 chapters of his book. Nehemiah, when faced with great threats of violence by uh, the opposition when they were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, he said to the people, Nehemiah 4.14, and that, what I like about these, these kinds of verses, they're, they're not emotionally driven. There's emotion in them. But they're not just, you know, oh, just trust God, brother. Uh, there's more to it than that. There's a resolve. There's a determination to face whatever God is going to allow. Whether he comes and delivers me from the beast or I'm devoured by the beast I'm going to trust God. There's a whole lesson of the, the three men in, in, it was before the furnace in Daniel chapter uh, 3. Whatever you say, king, 
That's on your side. But on our side, we're trusting God. Well, Nehemiah said it this way. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. And fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And when we are faced with anything that is terrifying to us, this is where we need to go. This is to behold your God. Look, get your eyes on him. Whatever comes, it is invigorating to be aware that he's not weakened by these things. He's no less in love with me, regardless of what happens. Satan is counting on Christians to cave in with fear and just be in turmoil. And uh, with that comes the dimming of the light. That's what he wants. So the prophet says, Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. Now he's getting them to look into the future. Well, he is the reward. We learn that in, in our New Testaments. Now, I cannot earn, no one can earn salvation. It is a gift from God to all those who choose to accept his invitation. There is a great distinction between the salvation that he gives to those who believe, which is from grace alone, and the rewards for service as those who are saved. Two different things. God gives unmerited salvation based on Jesus Christ. He never gives unmerited rewards. He does not reward us for what we did not do. Well, we have to earn the rewards, not the salvation. So don't come up and say, yeah, try to, you know, we the two. They're two different things, and I'll give you two verses in a minute in case you're still undecided, which you shouldn't be. <laughs> so, rewards have to be earned. John warned that we don't lose these rewards. John, second letter, chapter 1, verse 8. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we receive a full reward. Revelation twenty two twelve. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And so Isaiah says his reward is with him. And we respond, Lord, you are the reward, casting our crowns back at his feet in, in symbolic language of saying, we're not worthy. We're just glad to be here. And so, uh, verse 11 now, you know, as you're reading this, you, this in Isaiah, you say, boy, the New Testament sure has clarified or magnified much of what this Old Testament prophet taught the people. He's teaching them doctrine right understanding of God from Scripture so they can face life. Verse 11, He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and greatly lead those who are with young. This is sovereign care. The sovereignty of God is not synonymous with tyranny. God is not a bully. He does care. And the metaphor of God as shepherd runs throughout Scripture. It is one of its enduring features. For instance, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He's got it covered. That's what that means. It takes faith to get there. And many have done it, are doing it, and will continue to do it. And there will be more. When Peter stumbled in a great way, denying the Lord under pressure, the Lord rebuilt him and sent him out. Did not penalize him. He entrusted him with a larger ministry. And it was the shepherd's ministry. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. That's, that's a big commission. And Peter would later write to other pastors, shepherd the flock of God, 1 Peter 5, 2, which is among you, serving as overseers. He did just what the Lord told him. He fed the sheep. He tended to the sheep. He fed the lambs. It says here in verse 11, he will gather the lambs in his arms. So he continues with the metaphor of the shepherd. And I'll comment on all these metaphors somewhere in the middle of all this. But here is a gentle word of consolation for those who have been scattered. The Jewish people. 
that will be in the Babylonian captivity. They're going to read this. He will gather his lambs in his arms. God has not abandoned us to the Gentile world, even though most of the Jews remain content not or to not return to Israel. They uh, stayed in the Gentile world. They had learned business. And what they were doing unwittingly was preparing synagogues all over the uh, the then civilized world for centuries later, about 500 years later, for the apostles to travel to preach the gospel. How many times do we read about Paul going into a synagogue in a Gentile land and beginning to preach and make converts there? God is in control. Not only did he put the synagogues there, he paved the roads to them and he used the Roman army to do it. And not only did he pave the roads... He centralized the language that everybody could understand Greek. And we have our Greek New Testaments because of it. So God, he made the pathway, he made the place, and he gave the language. And here we are. Um, he continues here. He will gather the lambs with his arm. Mark 10. This is this endearing, endearing picture of the Lord taking up the children. He took them up in his arms and laid his hands on them and blessed them. Later, Isaiah will say to the older believers that he will not forsake them in their uh, older years. He will be with them. God does not love the children more than he loves us. He sees the children as more vulnerable than the adults. And therefore, he sends out this warning if you mess with the little ones, it would be better if someone tied a millstone around your neck and cast you into the sea. Because the judgment you're going to get for daring to violate the innocent, the defenseless, is going to be more severe than you, you could ever withstand. But that does not mean he does not love. God's love doesn't fade. That would be terrible. Well, God used to love me when I was six. And now that I'm 66, he's not so interested in me. No, see... The adult is more useful than the child. The child is more vulnerable than the adult. God balances these things, and so must we. And it is, I think, a rude approach to suggest that um, uh, you know, God's faith dims as life begins to steal from us our youth. It's quite the opposite. Oh, not the opposite, because it doesn't increase. It just remains steady. Anyway, uh, he says he will carry them in his bosom. These are those that could not keep pace with the flock. He will gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom. They can't keep up, so he'll pick them up. He does this to us. Now, the bosom is metaphor for close proximity, very close proximity. Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham. Well, he wasn't holding him in his arms up against his chest. He was there with Abraham. Uh, and he says here, and gently lead those who are with young. Well, the mother sheep requires special care. And that's what he's pointing out, that God is sensitive to these things. He's not oblivious. You say, you know, I've got so many things in my life that I want and I can't have, and I want them so much. God is not saying, I don't care about that. Uh, it, it, at that point, it's up to us to trust God and his methods. Jacob who had to learn the hard way, like everybody else, to trust. So he's coming back, and he heard Esau's coming to, get, to meet him with 400 men. The last time he saw Esau, uh, Esau was going to kill him. So he doesn't know 20 years later where, where this is going to go. In fact, he's thinking it's going to be bad. And he comes up with a strategy, but he's, he goes forward nonetheless. He's got nowhere to go. He's got Laban in back was taking an oath to kill him if he crosses the stones at Mizpah, or go forward. He has already wrestled with the Lord over this matter. The Lord blessed him, and on the strength of that blessing, with fear, he advances. And so Jacob comes and hugs him, embraces him, and there's this outpouring of human love. Now, human love is not agape love. Peter had human love and had to learn agape love for the Lord. And that's why he said, it's not so. You're not going to the cross, Lord. Well, that's human love. Agape love said, Lord, thy will be done. Anyway, Peter learned that. Jacob, so Jacob makes this statement. When Esau says, come with me, I'm, you know, with his 400 men on camels or donkeys, mules, whatever they were riding, 
And he says, come with me. And Jacob says, said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and the herds which are nursing with me. And if men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. And he builds on a little bit more. And next verse, but I'm not going to read it. And so there you have uh, the, the shepherd being gentle. He will gent- and gently lead those who are with young. God is sensitive to these things. Uh, so after Isaiah the prophet communicates God's care, and be- remember he started this next level of Isaiah with comfort my people, make straight their path, and singly pointing to those coming back from Babylon, but also beyond in the days of John the Baptist, preparing the path for Messiah to save sinners. And then, of course, he goes on and says, Behold your God, caring for his people like a shepherd cares for his flock. Now, based on establishing this, these uh, characteristics of God, these uh, attributes and features of his personality, he's now going to lay out the awesomeness of God. Because many of those Jews weren't believing it. They were following the idols. They, they weren't full-blown you, uh, followers of Yahweh. Some mingled it, some had become apostates, and some sat on the fence, and there were others that were part of the remnant. And the prophet is always working to build up believers, and that's now verse 12. He, he is going to unleash this uh, just sermon, a poetic sermon on God and his awesomeness, and it makes its point. So verse 12 now, Speaking of the God of the Jews, the God of Abraham, the God of, of, of the apostles, he says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? So now he's first presenting the majesty of God. By comparison to the false gods, which are a pathetic joke. And that's the point of the prophet. God is greater than anything on earth, verses 12 through 20. And then verses 21 through 26, he's greater than anything in heaven. He's far above principalities and powers. Uh, And it, it just, he is, well, Colossians 1. Speaking of Christ the creator, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. And heaven is the spiritual realm, that other dimension. Visible and invisible, there's your spiritual realm. And sometimes the two, they, they tangle up. He continues, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is in control. The New Testament matches the Old Testament. Or should I say the Old Testament matches the New? Idols are not self-existent. They're handmade. Whereas God is self-existent and is offended by those who attempt to make things in his image. He says, who measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. So he sees God as big, you know, big enough to scoop up the oceans and say, let's put about this much water on the earth. The greatness of the shepherd in verse 11 is his bigness. That there's more to him than just being a shepherd. Worthy of adoration, that's worship, distinct from all others. Now, worship rises or falls in any church or person, depending on attitude. If their attitude has God as small, uh, whether they see God big or little, that will determine the caliber of their faith, David in his psalm, in the 34th psalm, O magnify the Lord with me and exalt his name together. Well, magnify doesn't mean make bigger. It makes look bigger, but it doesn't make bigger. We can't make God bigger. And you magnify something, it retains its size, just the appearance. Your attitude changes towards it because you see more of it. So we can see God big, or you can see him little. Uh, That's not advisable. 
To say, to refer to God as the man upstairs reveals a concept of a small God. It's void of holiness. It is void of so much of his majesty. It is a title unworthy of God. So if someone says, well, you know, the man upstairs, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know, maybe your God is the man upstairs. My God is the God in heaven who rules over all creation. He's not worthy of being referred to as a man upstairs. It's kind of creepy anyway. Who's upstairs? <laughs> I need more than just such a, a vague description. And so if your God is little, then your faith is smaller. If your God is big, then your faith will be greater. And that's what Isaiah is saying. That's what David was saying. The ten unbelieving spies that went into the promised land saw God too small to take the promised land and give it to them by their own words. They saw God smaller than the enemies. Numbers 13, verse 33. This is the voice of unbelief. This is the voice. These are the voices, a chorus of those who see God as smaller than problems. There we saw the giants. The descendants of Anak came from the giants. Moses inserts that. But then now back to their words. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. So we were in their sight. We felt so tiny. And they felt so big. That's their story. Now Caleb and Joshua saw it the other way around. In Numbers chapter 30, before they give you their little pathetic speech... We pick up Caleb and, and, and Joshua. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses. Could you see Caleb? You know, we know he's a rough guy. He's, he's in his 80s. He said, I can still fight. And so Caleb, when it says he quieted the people, he just took his sword out. Everybody shut up. No, I don't need to do that, but that's, I like that. Anyway, Caleb quieted the people. Before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession for we are able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go against the people for they are stronger than we. And so there is, you know, the inhabitants were were giants and they were grasshoppers. But God, in verse 22 of this chapter, says it's actually the other way around. Look at verse 22 of Isaiah 40. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. That is seeing God as big. Now, it continues here in verse 12. He measured the heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. The distance between the thumb and the pinky is a span. Let's make about that big. <laughs> Again, it's poetic language. It's divine design, and it involves engineering. Or you can actually see sort of someone baking a cake or a pie. You know, put a little measure of this, a little bit of that. They don't know just how much to put. When it says he weighed the mountains and scales and the hills and a balance, it is a language we can appreciate. We, we applaud this kind of approach because how else can the prophet describe the bigness of God? There's nothing in his creation bigger than him. Part of a thing can't be bigger than the thing itself. It's a fundamental. And God did not make Jupiter and say, wow, I overdid it on that one. That's bigger than me. It is not. Verse 13, "Who who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has taught him, verse 14, with whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? These are rhetorical questions. Of course, the true God needs no advice. There's no advice you can give to God. God, let me give you some, let me give you a point, (laughs) a tip here. Uh, It's just insane. That's not your flesh talking. That's stupidity talking. Full-blown ignorance. An all-knowing God, an omniscient God, cannot learn. And it's pointless to disagree with him because of that. Now, he allows us to dialogue. 
He allows us to lay out our case before him. And he, from time to time, will adjust his action based on that. But even that has great limits. He let, he let Abraham go along. You know, if you read that section with Abraham before, you know, Abraham is praying to God not to destroy the sexually perverted. Abraham had a heart for God. And God listened to him. And that, if you read that section, you say, well, okay, we got the point, Abraham. And he keeps bringing the number down, down until finally God says, okay, that's it, ten. Ten's your number, Abraham. If you can find ten men in Sodom and Gomorrah that are righteous, ten people, I'll spare it. Well, he couldn't find it. Anyway, uh, uh, it's the flesh talking when you think God is missing the point. Psalm 145, verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. You don't have to question his goodness. We will, the flesh will, but the spirit will put down the flesh. And it will repeat itself. Some are better at it than others. All can be uh, better at doing it as life goes on. Verse 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as a small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. And so, again, nothing approaches the enormity and wonder of God. Uh, how, how can you not love the language of the prophet? Now, you stop here and you say, well, wait a minute. What about if I'm going through something that's really bad? And there are quite a few bad things. Well, it won't look pretty. It will hurt. But in the end, what's, what is going to happen 150 years from that point? What, what, what is going to be important to you then? That's perspective. And it is... Um, it's not something we, we ask for. It'd be foolish to say, God, can you load me up with problems so I can demonstrate my faith? That would be so ridiculous. Uh, and, of course, he's, a, he's, a, he's not like, oh, okay, that's a good idea. Uh, but, but from time to time, you know, I, I, we, we come across someone in our life who is, is a good Christian as good Christians go. And they're suffering unfairly. And yet we, we just commit it to the Lord. And that's what we're supposed to do. That's what he expects us to do. And I think that sometimes God allows uh, these awful circumstances for the purpose of fortifying the faith of his people. And um, without those event, these events, uh, the believers maybe would, their faith would be either weaker or false. And so he filters it out through these experiences. It's one of my takes on these things. Um, you know, whole Christian villages have been slaughtered. Men, women, and children alike. Uh, the Jews, the righteous Jews, had even suffered along with the wicked. So um, th these things are realities that we have to face in faith or... You throw your faith away and face them as an unbeliever does. You know, may God strengthen us to do the right thing. Verse 16, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its be sufficient for a burnt offering. Now, Lebanon, as we, we may recall going through the scriptures, known for its timber, its cedars, and its cypress trees, and just its trees. But never had they enough to light a fire for the altar of God. Never has it been sufficient. Always, whatever man takes from creation to worship God, he's taking from God. It's God's creation. It belongs to God to begin with. It's insufficient for fire, and it's insufficient for sacrifice. Man cannot offer an adequate solution to sin. That's the point. Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beast sufficient for a burnt offering. So it's in the theme here. Is that of uh, ritual sacrifice, which uh, uh, is for education, to keep us mindful of our sinful state. That's what it was for for the Jews. Hebrews ten fourteen, when Paul is writing to the Jewish people and saying, "You need to stop being a part of Judaism. You need to be Christians." And he says to them, "For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins." That's the same, that's what Isaiah is saying in verse 16. Whatever can be offered to God in worship and sacrifice is always far, far short 
of his glory. You can't offer a saint there. That was the best wood for the fire and the best bull on the fire. Now, you know, uh, God has got to be impressed by that. Well, that's not true. So, whatever we offer, he created to begin with. We're offering his stuff. If you look at it that way, if you really want to impress God, then create something from nothing. But you can't. We are inadequate. We're not good enough. We're not powerful enough. Still, he accepts us in Christ, even rewarding us for the service we do in the power of his Holy Spirit. Paul knew this, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. 2 Corinthians 3, 5. It is a good verse to memorize. Verse 17. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. It's, it's, it's too bad that many of the people in his day in in Jerusalem, and the Jewish people, many of them, they needed to hear this. They were non-compliant to these teachings, to these doctrines, these understandings of who is God. When the Christian sees God, they don't have to say, who are you? We know who he is. He's revealed it to us. And thus, all scripture is by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, for correction, instruction in righteousness, that the child of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped. God is superior. All the nations, verse 17, before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. And the end of the Great Tribulation will finalize that. Well, phase one, the final, ultimately a thousand years or more after, it will be finalized completely, but humanistic man is is too impressed with mankind. Humanistic man disapproves of God. And yet they, they like his creation, even though it is a flawed creation, now because of the curse of sin, and they won't even acknowledge him. They prefer nature over the God of creation, Romans 1.25. We all know this. It's worth telling an unbeliever if you get a chance. It's okay to open your Bible and say, hey, let me just read this to you to shut you up. <laughs> and hopefully, hopefully you'll convert from your, your blindness. It says, speaking of God, I'm um, speaking of the humanistic men in the days of Paul who exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That would be idolatry, whether it's made up in your head or with a statue. And worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So, back to the metaphors. What Paul is saying, what Isaiah, what the Bible tells us, is the reality behind the metaphors is greater than the metaphors. He is metaphorically a shepherd, but he's greater than that. It's just, we're trying to just get it so we can understand. He's far greater than any shepherd. And we're far more value to him than any sheep. He tells us that. And when Jesus comes along, he says, you're of more value to me. Well, he says here in verse 17, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. Uh, Humanity has nothing to, you can't brag before God. Collectively or individually, you cannot, a nation cannot say, brag to God. Even Abraham could not. Romans 4, verse 2. Now, when Paul writes Romans, he's mindful of unbelievers. And he's mindful of the questions believers have about unbelievers, because there are good ones. What happens to them? I believe there are, there are Muslims and Buddhists around that are good people that have never heard the gospel. And God will do the right thing with them. I, I do not believe, oh, you go to hell, that's it, too bad. I believe God, the God of the universe always does right. And it's quite presumptuous to think that we know better than him. But as for those who hear the gospel... Well, that's, that's a pretty clear deal there, and that's what we go by. Um, so he says here, and they are counted by him as less than nothing and worthless. For Abraham, Romans 4.2, 
was justif- uh, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Paul takes that away. Even Abraham, the father of the faith of the Jews, uh, he can't brag to God. And if he can't brag to God, nobody can. I just love this stuff. I love that once you, you know, God shows you something, you see it and you try to comply. You say, 10-4, Lord. Roger that. I got it. The unbeliever scoffs, digs deeper away. But we see the beauty of these things. And I think as Isaiah is writing this, I think he just got carried away in a, in a good way, in a righteous way, he's just loving on the Lord and his splendor. Look at verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare him? Is, are you crazy coming here with these idols? What are you going to liken him to? The name Michael means who is like God? Nobody. And that's why Michael's rebuked the devil. And Michael will cast Satan and his minion out from the presence of God. Because nobody's like God. And it's the very thing Satan wanted to be, like God. I shall exalt my throne and my star and all this gibberish. Um, it's, it's, it's a wonder the angels listening to that, the righteous ones, didn't die laughing. That doesn't make any sense. Anyway, uh, man-made images of God, they don't impress him. Wow, look at that. It's so creative. Is that a mustache? Psalm 113, verse 5. Who is like Yahweh our God who dwells on high? Nor is there salvation in any other name, for there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. It is impossible to create anything to represent the Creator. Uh, it just the symbols may point to his work, to his to characteristics of God. Uh, you can say, uh, well, the cross is a symbol of his love and his sacrifice, but that's not an image of him. Having never seen God, idolaters still attempt gross representation, grotesque representations of him. Titus, chapter 1, verse 5. It's like Paul, when he's writing this to the pastor Titus, he's, he's just sharing what he's come up against as a pastor and he's sharing it with Titus to say, you're going to come up against this too. And so you're going to have people like this. He says, to the pure, all things are pure. You're going to have good people in your life. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. We might say they, not, they don't have a filter. That's the language of today. Uh, their conscience is defiled. They don't know how to do right because they don't want to know how to do right. They will always look to benefit uh, for them, take benefit for themselves at the cost of others. Uh, and so Paul warned him. Well, in Isaiah's day, there were people like that, and yet they still made these little figurines in religion. Verse 19 The workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Now, this wouldn't be so bad if there were, these were. Just the people surrounding the Jewish people, the covenant people. But that wasn't the case. The people surrounding the covenant people had influenced the covenant people. And now many of them broke the covenant with God and were doing these very things. Uh, all the, the, the book of Judges, the book of Kings, the, all of the prophets. This is the story. It is the story of Christianity. That there are people that are born in a righteous house, uh, go to a good church, learn the scripture from childhood, and then get up and make their choice as adults to drink the devil's brew. And it is, you know, it's not magic. And God's not going to say, well, you know, they don't mean it. This is serious business, and we need to approach it that way. God approaches it that way. Allowing his son to die on a cross, I think, is a very big statement just concerning that alone. They, they imagine that the invisible God can be made with visible stuff, these, these idolaters. Um, now people imagine that God can be shaped by their imagination or, or forced out of existence in their imagination. They just decide that they're going to be atheists. 
Uh, Colossians 1, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. Even if we had pictures of Jesus, he's not going to look, when we see him, he's not going to look like he looked when he walked the earth. He is uh, in a glorified state in, in that in, in that context of his coming from the Father to earth, uh, or whether it's the Christophany before the virgin birth or his maturity after the virgin birth. Uh, you know, the apostles didn't recognize him. On the road to Emmaus, they didn't recognize him. Uh, it, it would be foolish just on that level, but it is uh, prohibited, period, even if uh, you, you could see what Christ now looked like. You, we are forbidden from making any uh, image of him. First Timothy 1.17, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now the King eternal is Christ. It's the deity of Christ that Paul writes about. And so the workman uh, is trying to make an image of the invisible God. How do you do that? You've not seen him. Yeah, well, I just, this is how I think he looks. And then the next guy says, well, I think he looks this way. <laughs> it's like, and, and as you know, from many of the existing pieces of junk that the world calls artwork, these... Uh, these clumsy manifestations of gods, many of them are grotesque. It's like, man, if I saw something like that, I don't think I'd want to worship it. I might want to shoot it. I mean, you know, the multiple heads and just all sorts of weird, and then it even gets to be um, immoral. And they're on there, still have temples. In Tibet, they have temples with these acts that are just unspeakable. Anyway... Uh, after rejecting the truth, what remains? What do you have left? Just make stuff up. Verse 20. I, I don't know. If I was speaking to me before I was saved, what would I say to these things? I, I, I think that the salvation of a soul is such an incredible experience. Would I have responded to the logic? Or was I in such darkness that the, like a black hole that is said to have so much gravity that light can't get out of it. And, uh, of course, um, I, what that, where that leaves me is, I think, sober-minded in, on this subject of praying for lost souls that they are blind and they are spiritual fools. I was once there. It took God to get me out of there, and it's going to take God to get them out. But he invites me to pray without ceasing. That's actually the second. Well, in the Greek, it's the, first, it's the shortest verse in the Bible. Pray without ceasing. If you count the letters, Jesus wept, pray without ceasing. Yeah, anyway. Hope I'm not getting that confused. It's been a long time since I've done those little things. Give me a second here. That's it. All right. Uh, coming back to this, and if you fact-check me and I'm wrong, yeah, you can let me know, but maybe give me $5, too, just to kind of like a consolation prize. Here, Pastor, I don't want you to feel bad. You got that one wrong. Here's five bucks. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> and if you, if you do and you don't, then I'll call another pastor. Hey, I got some cheap congregants over here. What do you do with them? All right. Back to, back to this. Uh, so if you, if you can't, what happens if you can't afford a golden idol? Well, Satan is not going to be stopped by that. Verse 20, whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. He's got to have a craftsman to keep his God from falling over, and that won't work. So the devil is interested in damning the poor also. If you cannot afford an extravagant idol, then a common idol will do just as well. Verse 21. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? So now he goes into this question format. He'll provide the answers, of course. Paul does that with Romans. In many sections, he goes to question-answer uh, question format. Uh, but these are the components of understanding. He's saying humans are expected to know better. Have you not known, heard, has, have you not been told, understood? Well, that's what Paul said. 
Because, Romans chapter 1, what may be known of God is manifest. It is told in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So Paul says, just look at creation. Even a kid, a child, shoots down create, uh, uh, evolution. You say, well, we came from, you know, I don't know what they could even say anymore. We came from chimps and we came from fish or whatever. Well, a little child can say, well, where did that one come from? And then you say, we came from the fish. Well, where'd that come from? We came from the shrimp. Well, where'd that one? And you just could take it until they're stuck. Um, I don't know where the first one came from. It came from space. Well, where did space come from? Well, it's just illogic. I'm just venting more than I am preaching. Because we know that to believe in evolution, especially as a scientist, you have opted out of reason. You can maybe understand it with somebody who just listens and says, okay, sounds good to me, versus someone who owns a microscope, an electronic microscope, and know that these things aren't even possible. And yet they continue to beat that drum. Why should God save that person? Well, why should God save any of us? Because he is love. We still have our role. Anyway, I like how Isaiah puts it out there. Haven't you known? Haven't you heard? Hasn't, hasn't it been told? Don't you understand? Don't you get it? Verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Well, how else is he supposed to present the bigness of God to people who worship, worship these little statues? I, um, anyway, it is he, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what he is saying. God has never abandoned mankind. Even after it fell into sin, he still is, is very much presiding over his creation, even in the midst of the curse and all of the debauchery. Hebrews chapter 1, who being the brightness of his glory, that's Christ he's speaking of, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. Upholding all things means running the universe. Things aren't just, you know, randomly going through space. Not, wherever they go, they go by permission. Ephesians adds this little note when he speaks about the body of Christ and Christ. And then he says of Christ, him who fills all in all. Ephesians 1.23. Yeah, he, he has not abandoned creation. He did not abandon the first murderer, Cain. Cain abandoned God. It is the story of mercy wasted, of love lost, because Cain wanted it, preferred it that way. The capacity for human beings to be spiritually insane. Who sits above the circle of the earth. Well, we know the earth is a circle and not a cookie sheet, a baking sheet, a flat. You just look at the moon and you just, okay. You look at everything I know that's out there is round and so are we. It's incredible how some commentators try to downside well it's a dome well a dome is half of a circle is it not so is the earth is the earth like this dome going around the sun but everybody else has got a full <laughs> the moon is rounding anyway uh these echoes job twenty six ten, proverbs eight twenty seven also make this point and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers colorful language of course making the point that uh, mankind is minuscule, creation is minuscule compared to God, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, like a canopy. And this is in Psalm 104, and again, Job 9. It, uh, Job's theology and understanding of things was so good, uh, and his, his accusers was just all mixed up, uh, and spreads out like a tent, uh, and, and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. This is meant as poetry. It is not science. Uh, even when, you know, you speak of the believers in, in Revelation with harps and the clouds and all, it is, 
symbolic. So much of Revelation is symbolic uh, because it, is, it spans the ages. It's not meant to be taken. Literally, it doesn't have to be meant to take. Uh, the point is what God is after, making the point. Verse 23, he brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Verse 24, scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth, when he will also blow on them, and they will wither, and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. So God holds them accountability. Uh, In the millennial reign, this will have its literal application. It will be rare to find somebody who is up to evil and sowing that evil until we get to the very end of it. Verse 25, To whom then will you liken me? To whom shall I be equal? Says the Holy One. Uh, And of course Christ is referred to as as the Holy One of God in the New Testament. Uh, This is a repeat of verse 18, largely a repeat uh, for emphasis. Verse 26, Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number, he calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and strength of his power, not one is missing. Well, since the days of Darwin, there has been an eagerness to reject the idea of an omnipotent being, of, of reject the idea of God, especially amongst the formally educated. Now, Isaiah is formally educated, so it's not a shot against formal education. It's what man does with it that, that counts. Psalm 147, verse 4, he counts the number of stars. He calls them all by name. Well, if he's omnipotent and knows everything, then, um, of course, he's going to know where everything is, its identity, its nature. He's going to have it all together. Jesus pointed this out about himself. He's the doorkeeper. You know, he's a, to him, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Early in ministry, God impressed upon me, know the names of the people. Because name is nature, name is identity. It counts, it matters. Don't take that lightly. Uh, Do not ever look at people as, um, what would you call it? Like a salesman might look at somebody, you know. Uh, Look at somebody like a purchase order. You've got to look at them. They're God's people. And you're going to have to answer to him about those people. So make sure you, you keep it where if there's anything goes wrong, they're the blame. <laughs> it's not easy, but you can get better at it. Uh, anyway, uh, people count is the point. Uh, nickels and noses is not a good way for a pastor to go about being a pastor. Verse 27. Oh, let me pause. It really helps, of course, the nickels and the noses. You can't do without them, but that's not where the emphasis lies. Uh, he has to have a shepherd's heart, not an accountant's heart. Uh, verse 27, <laughs> pause there. What would happen if God's, <laughs> the Lord is my accountant? <laughs> he shall add up. I mean, it's just, that doesn't fit. I prefer a shepherd. Uh, far better. And uh, uh, many pastors, or so-called pastors, they, they, they become accountants. They get mixed up in, in numbers, and that's, a, that's, a, that's fatal. Verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from Yahweh, and my just claim is passed over by God? So the prophet anticipates uh, a comeback. Because people with low faith are ready to give you a reason why they're not going to believe. Um, so he reminds them of their origins as God's people. Do you want to say to the Jew today, do you believe in your Bible? And if they say yes, or if they say no, you say, well, how did you get into the, that promised land? Where did you come from? How did you even come to be a Hebrew people? Why is it innate in you that you feel that you should be separate from the Gentiles? Even though you fight it, why is it there? You try to get them to the source uh, and that's what Isaiah is he's taking them back. Uh, some felt abandoned as though God cared nothing for their troubles. Well, they had, they had abandoned God. And he warned them of these things. So in the next verse, Isaiah responds to this 
And he's, it's more doctrine. It's more sound teaching. Verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. You think God doesn't understand. It's unsearchable. Everything uh, that takes place in our life takes place in a defective setting. We have never breathed fresh air. We have never been where there's no curse. Uh, This is all we know except by faith what has been revealed to us. We have physical senses and we have spiritual senses. And the spiritual are more real than the physical because they are eternal. Uh, the physical, after a while, you know, you won't be touching these things. And uh, you, we have a glorified body. We'll live forever with Christ. <coughs> Some felt abandoned as though, again, God did not care. He responds with verse 28 with the questions again. Uh, and um, he says, even in this damaged and corrupt world, where all life is corrupted, because all life is is um, under the, all life dies in this, this world, which is going to be very interesting with this whole argument about UFO bodies. Wait a minute. Death is peculiar to earth, to garden, the Garden of Eden, to human beings and those created on earth, uh, animals, insects, viruses. Uh, everything dies here. So that's going to, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working on a sermon. I shouldn't have said anything. <laughs> but I want to address these things because the Bible does. And the Bible does not leave us scratching. Up, well, yeah, I don't know what's going on. It doesn't do that to us. It says, I'll give you some precedence for all of this. I'll give you the possibilities. I'll give you the solutions. I'll give you just enough. I'm not going to mess with your curiosity. But I am going to build up your doctrine. So that you will have an answer to everyone who asks. And there are uh, multiple scenarios. And I think all of them are rational. So if you remember, pray for me, that I'm able to communicate these things uh, thoroughly and effectively. Uh, So there. Um, Usually, what do I do on my spare time? Think about things. (laughs) What do you do on your spare time? (laughs) Like, well, that's a good one, Lord. Uh, So anyway, coming back to this, um, uh, verse 29, he uh, he gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. So God does not give more power to the people. That is quite communist and socialistic. That's where it comes from. And back in the 60s and 70s, give power to the people. They, They wanted, of course, that. Under the delusion that somehow communism is not a religion. Communism is a religion and is a nasty one at that. And it will not tolerate competitors. You are either part of the state church or you are persecuted. And this is history. Well, um, anyway, he gives power to the weak. Uh, weak Christians can become stronger. That's just a fact. You may not never be, you, none of us will ever be as strong as we want to be. But there are some Christians that tend to just always be a little bit more needy and always, you know, unstable, have an element of instability about them. Well, they can be stronger. Uh, and that, that's, God gives that. Second Corinthians, we know this one. Here Paul was concerned about his own life. And the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, Paul adds, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. If God gets to show his strength through weak vessels, then let me be that weak vessel so he can show his strength. That's what he's, his logic. God is too, too good, too great to not care. Whenever you think God does not care because the problem's not going away or it's getting worse, maybe it's even terminal. That doesn't mean God does not care. Uh, it, it, it might actually be quite the opposite. And, well, he's going to get to that. Verse 30, even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men 
shall utterly fail. Now, youth, by definition, is full of vigor and strength. That's what I do not get. This generation's young people drinking energy drinks. I got more energy than they do? I mean, what are you kidding? What is up with that? I need an energy drink. You're like 25 years old. We can, we can plug an electric car into you and you can charge it. What, are you, what's, what is with that? And then you drink it and they're not doing nothing more. You would think they'd get a broom and sweep up. <laughs> no, this is crazy. And, and, they, and the manufacturers, some of them tell you on the label that it's, it's a lie. It's Red Bull. I'll have two. <laughs> anyway, so here, this is, Isaiah speaks as though he's not a young man anymore. Because he's like, even, you know, verse 30, even the youth, even the youths with an S, shall faint. And so he speaks as though a man who has felt his vigor fade a little bit. I don't know, I feel pretty good right now. And I'm, you know, I'm not one of those people who don't say it. You bring a, I, don't, you know, I rebuke superstitions. But um, I don't know. I, I feel pretty good light right now. I, I don't feel I, I, the, the, the vigor going. Um, I'm enjoying aging. As long as I stay healthy. I mean, when I get sick, that's a different thing. But when I'm feeling pretty good, it's like this isn't bad. You know, I'm smarter than I used to be. I'm more quiet except when I'm up here. But, um, you know, I just watch things fall apart around me. <laughs> and just say, yeah, well, it's been doing that since the beginning. Anyway, natural strength fails. That's what the prophet is saying. All flesh eventually grows tired. No exception. Verse 31. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. There's a strong contrast. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Well, of course, it's more poetic language. We're not going to get wings like eagles. I wouldn't even want those. I mean, how would you put a shirt on? Even if you cut holes, even with cutouts, it wouldn't work. Uh, in those days, eagles were quite prevalent. And, uh, you know, eagles are fierce animals. If I lived around golden eagles, I think I would shoot them. I'm afraid. They are, have you seen them pick up goats and just fly away with them and then drop them? What would you do if one of those things showed up in your backyard? You are mowing, and all of a sudden you're like, hey, <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like I can look down on my house. He's going to eat you. Anyway, in, in those days, they, they were very much more in touch with nature. And so that's mounted with wings like eagles. is good language. And it indicates that their strength has been spent. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Well, their strength needs to be renewed because they are exhausted. It has been spent. And, and uh, there will be heartache and there will be heartbreak while we wait for Christ many times. Uh, not, um, not waiting is worse. Waiting for God does not mean do nothing. Jude, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Uh, there are things to do. One main thing to do while you're waiting for God is stay out of his way. That's not easy. For, you, but you can get better at it. You just keep, I'm going to keep my fingerprints off of this. He said, don't touch it. I'm not going to touch it. Um, and, and, and so I'm going to close, just run through this and I'll close with two verses. It says, um, they shall mount up with wings like eagles. Uh, ins inspiration lifts the soul. That is a fact. When we get charged up spiritually, we, we get stronger. They shall run and not be weary. Stamina and speed characterize inspiration from God. They shall walk and not faint. Uh, they're fit for the long haul. They make it all the way. That's what it means to, to not, you know, drop out of the walk. Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. 
I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Now, I don't want to, I hesitate to read the next verse because I think it's, it's too often read without the context of verses 12 and 13, but here it goes. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's what's being said here by Isaiah. The Lord will renew your strength because he will strengthen you. And you uh, wait on the Lord. And in that time, learn how to wait. Let's, uh, let's, let's pray. Our Father, just a magnificent passage of Scripture, so easy to appreciate the glory and, and your glory and splendor as best we can verbalize it. Just, we love you and, and, and no one is, is like you. May you get us all home safely tonight, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.